Good morning. It's good to see you all and be with you again. Let's open up our Bibles. If you have your Bible with you, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12. I'm going to be reading now from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read from verse 12 through to 26. Sorry, verse 27. Verse 12 to 27. First Corinthians 12, verse 12 through 27. This is God's word. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body... Though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray now and ask God to bless not only the reading of this passage, but our understanding and obedience to it. Our gracious heavenly father, we thank you that you have not left us without the light of your word. And Father, as we sit here now under the warmth and light of your Son, Father, we pray that you would take your word and apply it to us by your Spirit so that it would warm and lighten our hearts. Father, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. And Lord, we pray that it would pierce the depths of our hearts, convicting us of sin, yes, Lord, we pray that you would use it also to encourage us in faithfulness, that we might leave here this morning refreshed and better able to respond obediently to your word and following our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. 
modern people, generally speaking, do not like the idea of dependence, of being dependent. We major, especially here in the West, on independence, on autonomy, on carving out our own paths, walking to the beat of our own drums. We generally don't like the idea of needing others, and we especially cringe at the idea of being defined by others. Being dependent, to many of us, sounds like weakness or maybe even a deficiency. Stand up for yourself. Do things your own way. For the most part, people enjoy and take pride in their autonomy. So when we approach a passage in the Bible that speaks about interdependence in the church, as I think this passage is, many contemporary people might find themselves attracted a bit to the picture of community. We do not ultimately want that community if it's at the expense of our independence. We like we want community that's now more and more in, in the up and up and faddish in our society. But more often than not, we're not willing to pay for that community with the price of our own autonomy and independence. Paul enters into this tension as he continues his discussion about internal matters within the church community. He's concerned about our Christian worship. He's concerned about our life together. And he especially wants to ensure that the Corinthians' life together reflects that upside-down nature of the gospel that they've received from his preaching. As we've already seen throughout this epistle, our study through it, one of the major problems inflicting the Corinthian church, and to be sure, a problem that plagues churches still today, was that the Corinthians really didn't look all that different from the pagan unbelievers around them. They weren't looking much different from how they did before they received the gospel. Well, they had essentially imported the entirety of their culture and the pagan world around them, what was cool in Corinthian society, into the life of the church. There were issues of status and Hierarchy. There were issues of classism between the brothers and sisters. There were issues of sexual deviance that looked far more like Corinthian pagan worship than anything that God had instructed in his word. And one of Paul's main goals is to get them to take a hard look at themselves, really to get them to take a hard look at Christ and then themselves, and then help them make this kind of mid-course adjustment to repent so that their community could actually become a witness to the beauty of the gospel. Three weeks ago, when we looked at the passage just before this, the beginning of 1 Corinthians 12, we saw Paul's reminder that the church is God's idea. It's an institution grounded in the saving work of our triune God, centered around the common confession that, as we saw earlier in this passage, Jesus is Lord, verse 3, and that the church exists in all of its being by the power and gifting of the Holy Spirit. Through and through this entire letter, we've seen the theme that the church is, at its core, something that God is doing in us 
It's not primarily something we do for God or something people have come up with to, you know, get close to God. If we do this, maybe the Lord will lend his ear to us. No, the church is the blood-bought and spirit-empowered people of God. And this whole section that we've begun to look into, chapters 12, 13, and 14, we're going to see Paul unpack for us more and more the nature of how the Spirit works within the church, how the Spirit gifts the church. What Paul does here in our passage this morning is he uses an analogy to describe the church. Throughout the New Testament, there are lots of analogies used to describe the church. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the temple of God. You see that in the letters of Peter. The church is a household. Paul uses that in Ephesians. But here we see one of the Apostle Paul's favorite analogies. The church is a body, a physical human body. He takes the analogy of the human body, and think about that, the body created by God, every part perfectly created to serve the whole being of a person, no part is wasted, no part of the body is useless, and he applies that image, he stretches that image to what it means to be a church. And what Paul does with this analogy is this, He's essentially communicating the idea that God has designed his church to be a community that is interdependent. Let me say that again. He's communicating the idea that God has designed the church to be a community that is interdependent. The church is made up of complementary parts where each member brings something to the table that the other members need. And in that church... We're to see each member be interdependent and that each member both relies upon and serves every other member. And so this morning, I want us to see three things about the church as we study this passage specifically. First, I want us to see the beauty of interdependence, the beauty of interdependence. Second, we'll see the danger of independence the danger of independence. And lastly, we'll look at what Paul says about recovering interdependence. So first, the beauty of our interdependence. Paul starts in verse 12 by using the body metaphor to build his case for the beauty of the church. Why do I say beauty? Because the major idea here is that this is how God has intended the church to be. A beautiful diversity of parts working together in unity. And since this is God's design, it's good. It's beautiful. It comes from the beautiful mind of our creator, and therefore it is a beautiful reflection of his wisdom here on earth. Consider his arguments in verses 14 through 20. It's a simple argument. Verse 14, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body was an eye, were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? 
If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But think about that image that he sets up for us. Like, what if you were just one old big set of ears walking around, right? Like two ears, legs, and feet. Or just one big nose walking around into church. It, 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 there's no beauty there because it's comical, right? What Paul says is, imagine if the whole body were an eye. He, he's painting a picture of a cartoon. And there's no beauty in cartoonish figures. Now, what God has put together through the empowering of the Spirit, it's not just good. And we saw that three weeks ago. The gifts he gives to each one of us is for, as he says, the common good. But it's more than that. It's all also beautiful. Verse 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. He wants you to meditate on the seriousness of who and what we are. Listen to that. The body of Christ. Ought there not be anything more beautiful than that? And what is it that makes the body of Christ beautiful? That's an important question that we want to get right, because sadly, I think many get it wrong. The beauty isn't the aesthetic nature of the body. To be sure, this is often where many churches have gone, be it the ornate sights and sounds and smells of a high church liturgy like you'd see in the Eastern Orthodox Church with all their beautiful gold icons and images and incense. Or maybe what you'd see in many Roman Catholic cathedrals with their high and exalted architecture and the beautiful vestments and robes worn by the priest. Perhaps there is real beauty there. That's not what Paul seems to be talking about. You see this error show up even in many newer churches that try and show off a modern aesthetic of you know low lights in the audience, a bright colorful stage, a very hip worship team, and a pastor who dresses like he just came out of a Los Angeles fashion show. But for Paul, he doesn't have any of that in mind. In fact, if we're being historically honest, all of that kind of stuff would fit far more comfortably in the pagan temples around ancient Corinth. I think Paul wants us to see here that the true beauty of the church lies in the truth that we do not function as a collection of separate individuals. In fact, and, and, and this might surprise some of us, the church isn't even supposed to function like a democracy, right? Like, like there's never a 51% over the other 49% victory in the church. For Paul, the church, filled and established as it is by the Holy Spirit, cannot be something that splits up along party partisan lines which is what Paul spent the first four chapters of this letter really addressing the ugliness of all the cliques and parties within the church. No. The church's true beauty lies in the fact that we are all vitally connected through the Spirit of Christ and therefore function in all of our individual parts as one body. The idea here is that of harmony, true harmony. 
That, that word harmony is, is almost synonymous, as close as you can get to the word beauty. What is harmonious is beautiful. And in all beauty, there's harmony. And so what makes the church beautiful is her harmony. When all of her parts are centered on that common creed that we saw three weeks ago in verse 3, that Jesus is Lord. And every part is in harmonious agreement with her Lord and what he calls her to. It's there where the beauty and the glory of the body of Christ shines outwardly. Which means what? Which means when we stop looking to Christ, when we stop following our head and begin looking to each other or at each other, one part comparing itself to another part, when we do that, we begin to lose our harmony and we begin to lose a bit of the luster of our beauty. What do I mean? A.W. Tozer, in a famous quote, puts it this way. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same tuning fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard, a higher standard to which each one must individually bow. And so it is with a hundred worshipers who meet together on a Sunday morning. Each one must look away to Christ and in so doing are in heart nearer to each other than they could ever possibly be otherwise. Now, were they to suddenly become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship and to pursue unity for unity's sake, they would instantly lose all harmony and unity precisely because they're looking away from Christ. Throughout this entire section, Paul is jealous to point us back to our unity, not in being a church as a church, but our being in Christ and in the spirit of Christ. Look back at what we looked at three weeks ago in verse 4. Though there are a variety of gifts, they all come from the same spirit. And again, verse 5. Though there are a variety of services, they all come from the same Lord. And verse 6, even though there are a variety of activities, they all come from the same God. There it is. There's the ground of our unity and our beauty and our harmony. It's the beauty and the harmony of our one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or as Paul puts it here, the Spirit, the Lord, and God. Chrysostom, an ancient church father and a a famous preacher in his time, In one of his sermons on this text, he says this, that, quote, Since our triune God is one, the body which he has formed in the church is also one. That's really Paul's emphasis in this larger section. That the church's beauty is firstly a derivative beauty. It's not something that we have in and of ourselves, but it's a beauty of unity grounded in the beautiful unity of our one God. As Paul states the matter here in verse 12, just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. 
consider that, that last part for a second. Whether Jew or Greek or slave or free, we are all still one in one body by being baptized in one spirit and into the one body of Christ where our identity is now preeminently in Jesus Christ. When that happens, when our one identity is grounded in our one Lord, all these other distinctions, all these other identities fade away to secondary place. They fade away into the background. And they become, quite frankly, a bit irrelevant within the life of the church. If I could quote Vodi Bakum here for a moment. Vodi says this in a recent talk he gave, quote, ethnicity is not a bad thing. It's good. It's beautiful. And even though many want to argue that we ought to be colorblind, I say that dog won't hunt. Number one, because nobody really is colorblind. And two, because it's an affront to God. Now, this is Vody speaking as a black man. I'm quoting a black man here. So, right, hear this next part through that lens. Quote, God didn't give me all this rich, beautiful melanin so that you could act like I don't have it. Amen, somebody. And it's wrong for me to judge you for not having as much melanin as I do. God did this, people. And it's a good and natural thing that God has done. For us to say that we want to be colorblind is for us to say, I don't care about the variety of color roses there are in this world. As far as I'm concerned, God just made a rose. But why did he bother to make all these different colors if he didn't want us to praise him for it? And so his point is, yes, we enjoy and we celebrate what God has done in making Jews and Greeks and Nigerians, and Englishmen, and Filipinos. But when it comes to the beauty of the church, the essence of what makes all of this glorious, it is preeminently our unity in Christ. It is the unity of our common identity in Jesus Christ, which we celebrate and Lord willing, show forth to a watching world, a world that increasingly wants to take these other identities and make them preeminent. And we say, they're cool, we love them, but I love Christ far more. I also want us to see how Paul highlights here this beauty as a beauty of our interdependence. What we see, especially in verses 21 through 24a, is each member's indispensability. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Do you see what he's saying here? There's a ridiculousness in considering different members of the body, different members of the body, and then deciding, eh, I don't really need that part. Paul wants us to see that we are being preposterous 
when we fail to see the indispensability